1: From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable.
0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, everybody. And happy Valentine's day. Hopefully uh, you guys didn't drop the ball and remembered to get your wife or your girlfriend something special. If you didn't, I think uh, two years ago I got my wife a card and a pack of gum, (laughs) So, and that's not a joke by the way, Uh, I am horrible with those kind of things, I need to be better at that moving forward, but hopefully you guys didn't drop the ball and you made your wife happy on a special day. But today we're going to talk about whitetails uh, like we do most of the time here. And today's guest is a guy I've known for actually quite a while. His name is Garrett Armstrong. He works for Whitetail Properties. And the first half of this podcast is basically a, a success story. Last year, he had one hell of a season sounds like he harvested two good mule deer and two good whitetails and uh, that's what uh, the topic is today then the second half of the podcast we're going to talk a little bit about purchasing and selling land and uh, he's a bit of an expert at that kind of thing just because he works for whitetail properties and he works uh, in in that every day and uh, so we're going to touch base on that today as well so that's what the podcast is about really cool podcast we get to talk about animals and then we get to talk about land uh, two of my favorite things so hopefully you guys enjoy that now commercial today exodus trail cameras now these guys have been a partner since day one and uh, they have recently introduced the Exodus Trek. That is a lower price point camera. It retails for $145. And let me just run through some of the uh, specs real quick. 0.7 trigger speed, 0.7 second trigger speed, uh, a 55 foot detection distance, a 50 foot no glow flash range, 20,000 plus images expected from eight AA lithium batteries, and they have a a video mode that goes 720 or 1080 as well. Uh, They have a 2, 6, 8, 12 photo modes as far as megapixels are concerned. Uh, They have the cable lock, and the best part is, uh, and something that we've come accustomed to be used to, uh, that made no sense, but you guys know what I'm saying. Exodus has the five-year no BS warranty and the fifty percent off theft and damage replacement policy. You guys need to go to ExodusOutdoorGear.com right now. Check out the new trek. Buy seventeen thousand of them. That'd be that's probably too much, but I think seven or eight of them might might cover your area. And with the Nine Finger Chronicles discount, that is going from 145 to $20 off by entering the discount code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9 followed by the word FINGERS, and you're going to receive $20 off your purchase of a trail camera. And uh, so, yeah, go check out ExodusOutdoorGear.com and all the trail cameras that they, uh, that they produce. So... I think that's it, guys. We are going to get this podcast, this podcast, kicked off in a major way. Here is today's, I guess, hunter profile success story podcast with Garrett Armstrong of Whitetail Properties. All right, on the phone with me today, Mister Garrett Armstrong. How you doing today, man? Good, Dan. How are you? I can't complain. You know, if I was in your if I was in your shoes, I would be pretty happy too. Because just from looking at social media, it sounds like you had one hell of a season this year.
1: You know what? I, I did. I was really fortunate to be in the the right place, I guess, at the right time a number of times. So was, not every season, you know, goes as planned and as goes as good as it does. But I think if you put in the the time and the effort every once in a while it does definitely pay off
0: so let's talk a little bit about your your season I know we're kind of jumping right into it but we're gonna we're gonna talk like the second half of this podcast about what you do for a living and uh, why that's important to this particular podcast but 2017 you said great year for for you and your hunting season where did you start off at?
1: So I actually started off uh, in southern Saskatchewan on a mule deer hunt, um, and this is actually a hunt I've done with a really really good friend of mine, um, and client. Uh, this is our third year, and what's unique about this is we actually uh, we had through a, kind of some mutual friends we had gotten in contact uh, with a gentleman that that manages uh, an Indian reservation um, in southern Saskatchewan because typically uh, most non alien and non-residents cannot hunt in Southern Saskatchewan with archery or with firearms, but through a reserve hunt. It's a little bit different. Um, and we actually kind of coordinated that hunt three years ago. We've had three unbelievable hunts. Uh, the first year I killed a typical mule deer that grows just over 200 inches Mm. last year. My buddy killed one, a beautiful four by four with eye guards, like a a high one eighties deer, uh and then the third year on the hunt I killed a, a really respectable uh buck on the last day had kind of some cool points and a nice drop time so it, it's been an awesome hunt and the nice thing about it is it's in august so it's it's so much earlier like if you've got antelope hunts or elk hunts or any other early season mule deer hunts like this is kind of prior to uh those hunts and it's always a nice way to kind of open up the season with a nice early hunt
0: oh heck yes now Obviously August means velvet. So all of the all the bucks that you shot ended up being velvet in velvet
1: Yeah, you yep, all, all velvet uh, and they're just kind of at that Kind of critical phase where they were just starting to lose some of the velvet We'd see bachelor groups that were you know 80% velvet 20% hard horn So it's right on that ragged edge. You just never know what you're gonna get into um, but in the last three years, all the deer that we've been able to get shots at and, and have taken have all been velvet, which is cool, too, because, you know, being from the Midwest, I mean, you don't get a chance to hunt whitetails in velvet. You know, right. you've got to travel west to do that. Right, right.
0: So what is this terrain like in southern Saskatchewan where you were hunting? So it's,
1: I, I, would, I would call it all prairie grasslands. Um, there's some agriculture. Uh, lots of different grains are grown, but the area specifically that we hunted was actually near a national grasslands park. And it is literally just miles and miles and miles of just little coolies and little draws, but just grassy hillsides. I mean, it's extremely open country. This is, we spend 90% of our time behind binoculars and spinoscopes trying to find the deer 10% of the time you're actually hunting. So it's, it's it's definitely finding a, a needle in a haystack. Right.
0: So is this uh, your typical glass them, wait for them to bed, stalk them type of
1: hunt? You know we do uh, with that tactic definitely does work. But the, the challenge with with that is that, like, it's hard to pattern these deer. The, the country's so open, and because there's not like this. This food source where you can pattern them from from exactly food to exactly bedding. Yeah, I mean they're they're kind of just it's almost I almost describe it as they're just grazing because there's there's great native browse you know in, in all those native grasses, and it's it's yeah it's trying to find them in their beds. But at that time of the year the bucks or bats are faster grouped up and you have anywhere from six to twelve bucks bedded together in a group i mean it makes for really really hard (laughs) stalking conditions so and that's what's so fun about it is it's great seeing you know being able to see the game all day long while you're hunting and halftime, there's bucks you'd want to go after but you can't because the wind's not right or they're not bedded in the right position or you've got six other year and a half old bucks to get by before you get close enough to shoot them so it's It's as much as it's fun and challenging, it can also be really frustrating because you can see them and you just can't do anything about
0: it. So what are, what's the tactic then like blinds or is there another tactic that you're using?
1: You know, I guess the tactic that, that we've been, you know, really successful with is, is, is really just getting, getting as close to them as the terrain or the wind or the cover will allow and and just kind of letting them get up on a, out of their bed and make their next move. You know, I, in a lot of the little coolies and draw they bet in, it's it's either let's say they're going north or south along that drainage, and we're going to be on one side of them or the other. And sometimes they come our way, you know, with the with the wind in our face. Other times they go the other direction, and then it's you kind of regroup and you know come up with another plan, or you may run out of daylight and have to start the whole process over. The next day but it's it's trying to get inside of that you know 150 200 yard kind of circle if you were where you're close and you can predict where they're going but yet you're not so close that you're that you're bumping them we, we kind of make them make the next move before we kind of close that distance and pursue them right so
0: i i can see how that kind that style of hunting would be very frustrating if you know they don't read the script and come your way or you know the wind shifts and busts every deer in the coulee out
1: oh yeah and i and i mean that has happened so many times i mean the, the the quality of deer that we've kind of been on and gotten close to that we haven't you know been able to present a shot on i mean for every one we've taken you know there's there's you know, six or seven of those <laughs> stories of the of the big one that of, of the big one that got away. But it, it's really fun and it's I, I like that anything I can get on the ground and move around and spot and stop, you really feel like you're in the hunt all day long. And as much as I love hunting white tails out of a tree or a blind, it's like with whitetails, it's like, am I in the exact perfect spot right today right. for this deer. You know, and a lot of times I, I you kind of find yourself you kind of second guess yourself a little bit. And am I in the right tree? Should I have been on that side of the farm? Should I have been on a different farm? Where with this, at least you've got eyes on deer all day long. Yeah. And it's kind of up to you to kind of keep changing your strategy to, to get close.
0: Right. Right. Is this some, is this something that, you know, as long as they have you, you know, invite you to come, you're going to go on this, on this particular
1: hunt. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's so good. Um, And they take a, a very very limited number of guys a year and somehow i just got lucky enough to get on that short list so yes it's kind of a, a wow. standing invitation and we're gonna we're gonna keep going until until we can
0: perfect perfect all right next stop what south dakota
1: um yeah yeah a little little south dakota a little western south dakota um uh, we hunt uh they kind of divide the state in East river deer or West river deer. Uh, the river being the, the Missouri river. So we hunt, we hunt West river. It's still kind of considered a, a prairie deer tag where we hunt, but it's, it's West of Missouri. And uh, again, it's just, man, just some really cool like dark timber and bluffs and draws and some alfalfa fields. And uh, South Dakota is not known for like a really, really large mule deer, You know, top-end deer kind in our areas, 170, 180 inches, but it's just such a cool hunt. I think South Dakota is one of my favorite states to hunt in general. You know, easy to get tags over the counter, very you know pro archery and pro hunting state. Um, They just kind of really roll the red carpet out for you, and and we've hunted there for years and years. Whether it be hunting turkeys in the spring for Merriams or the old deer and actually in the last couple of years the whitetail hunting has actually gotten a lot better. Um, yeah. seen some really good quality bucks. so that's always kind of a nice bonus too. You just never know what you're going to run into. Absolutely. I hear a lot of that uh,
0: especially I guess both Dakotas you hear a lot that the, the, the whitetail uh, population and quality are seem to be getting better as time goes on.
1: Yeah, I think it's a real sleeper. I think the next couple of years could produce just some real, really, really cool deer. Yeah. Um, just some of the some of the photos. You know, you're bumping a guy's at gas station and you're picking something up at Shields and you're looking at the pictures or guys showing pictures on their phone. I mean, they're they're killing some really top end whitetails right now. Right. It's it's exciting. Right. So then, any
0: different uh, style of strategy from this mule deer hunt compared to the Saskatchewan mule deer hunt?
1: You know what? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good question. Um, the, the, the size of the property we hunt in South Dakota is much, much smaller. In fact, it's, it's only a couple thousand acres. Uh, it's, it's a couple thousand in the right spot. Um, and, and really on that is, that is kind of ground blind ambush out on, out on fields. Uh, okay. we're letting them get off the fields bed. We leave them alone in their beds, just let them get comfortable. They're fairly predictable if, as long as the weather and wind stays the same. What we found on this particular, you know, place is where they leave the field. Eight times out of ten, they're going to come back in the exact same spot uh, if they're unmolested in their beds. Yeah. So really, we're just we're just glass them in the morning, watch them leave the field. We do a lot of afternoon hunts, mostly scouting in the morning, hunting in the afternoon, uh, and just trying to just intersect them as they come back to food. So this is this is more of your
0: typical bed transition area food repeat type of pattern that these deer are on.
1: Yeah. In, in in on this particular farm, like the food is literally planted right up to the edge of the jaws and the breaks. So these deer in some cases, they may only be bedded 50, 60, hundred yards off the food. So they are right there. Like if you would you'd walk to the edge of the field and look over the draw, I mean, you've got deer right below you, like right now. Wow. So, they're really sensitive to pressure. So, again, we kind of have to – there's always, like, that that magical spot, the X, where you're like, man, if I could sit there, we'd kill him every time. Yeah. But, like, the X typically rarely produces the right conditions at the right wind where you actually can be there to kill them. So, we're always sitting way off the X, being a little bit conservative, letting them come out and feed and – And trying to use structure and hay bales and a few other things to kind of manipulate their movement, how they move through the field, to give us that kind of that archery close shot. So it's fun. It's it's totally a different hunt than that Saskatchewan hunt. That Saskatchewan hunt is you're running and gunning all day. Where South Dakota for us is kind of more like real strategic. You know, here's where we sit. Here's where they sit. Here's where they cross, and, and you're just really just sitting and waiting. A little bit more, more, more you know, white tail tactics, I guess, on these mules.
0: Right, absolutely. So, in that scenario, then, you're not spending all day or all afternoon in the blind. You're getting in there, you know, just a little bit before they start to move, or are you in there quite a, you know, quite a good time frame before, you know, they start to move?
1: You know what? We try to get in there fairly early just because they are bedded so close to the food and, and there's a pretty high gear density that, I mean, it's not uncommon for these deer, especially as you get into like mid-October. The season, the season typically opens the last couple of days, September. Um, and sometimes we go out at the beginning of the season. Sometimes we wait and kind of go out more mid-October when whitetail hunt at home is not really worth it, you know, kind of that October lull. Right. It doesn't affect those mule deer because they're still just bed to feed. Bed to feed. Right. So we've hunted them in October, November, December, and really, at any time, sometimes I mean, you could have fifteen, twenty deer in the field by one o'clock in the afternoon. Right. These are really big, deep fields. They're way off the roads. They feel really comfortable in the field early. And again, they bed so close to it. So, you know, it's a scout. in The morning they get off the field, they kind of regroup, maybe grab a, a late breakfast, early lunch, and then yeah, I mean, we're we're trying to get in that blind and and be there before any movement starts.
0: Nice. So again, another successful hunt uh in South Dakota now Iowa. now, are you originally from Iowa? I forget No, no,
1: my wife's from Iowa. i I grew up in Michigan
0: okay, all right so yep. you guys you guys live in Iowa, and so now you're a resident of Iowa. How long have you lived in Iowa uh this will be our third year. Okay, third year. All right. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, isn't it nice to get to hunt Iowa every year now? It's a dream. <laughs> it,
1: is, it, it really is. I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean this is this has always been my favorite state, and, and I was living here about twelve, thirteen years ago for uh, you know another career, and that's where I met my wife, and we kind of moved around between Michigan and New York, but our plan was always to come back to Iowa for. Multiple reasons: be close to family, uh, kind of more of a uh, you know, kind of more of a rural, you know, culture and, and and lifestyle. But then, obviously, there's always that added carrot of the best whitetail hunting in the country. <laughs> absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. fill us in on your whitetail season here.
1: You know what? I, I think just this being kind of my third year, it's just it's taken a little bit time to kind of you know get access to farms, find the right farms, kind of dial them in, get them set up the way you, you need them to, to, to be set up to really be successful. And it's kind of been a, a two-year process. And, and finally, I really felt good about the, the ground I had access to this year and, you know, went into the season with a plan where, you know, there are seasons where I was kind of scrambling and kind of hunting, kind of scouting all at the same time. Uh, this year was just a little bit different. Just had some had some farms really dialed in, and had some really good deer on the go, and kind of had a plan with with what I needed to do. And uh, man, just executed on it. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I mean, one of the things I've really gotten into, and it's it's been fairly addicting, and maybe even a little bit controversial, is the the use of cellular based trail cameras. Oh yeah, and and having like real time intel yeah. on a you know daily hourly almost minute basis right. that uh really helps making decisions on where to be and, and when and why so much easier so um that's that's really helped for sure you know because you're not wasting time in, in farms that you know aren't active right now or deer that aren't moving in daylight so right. um uh, or have a caliber that and yeah yeah exactly i mean it's it, it's weird how one year, one farm will have, you know, two or three, five or six year olds on it. You, you, know, you know, they make it through the season and you're excited about this year. And that was my case this year. And those farms that had great deer on it, and I know those deer live because they made it through the season and guys were picking up their sheds, just were gone this yeah. year. And in fact, they didn't show up on those farms again until uh, this month, till February. So, your plans can change where I thought that farm was going to be my go-to farm. I barely hunted that farm. So it's do you
0: just, think uh, it just, it just
1: changes all the time.
0: Yeah. Do you think any of that had to do with crop rotation?
1: Absolutely. Okay. For sure. Crop rotation and, and also some, uh, Some of the farm and farms around it, uh, this is the first year in a a CRP program, and the CP42, which is the pollinator program that was really pushed heavily the last few years by the USDA and the local FSA offices here in Iowa. So, so yeah, I mean, changing food sources, that crop rotation from corn to beans absolutely moves those deer around.
0: Yeah, that's something I've definitely been thinking about uh, a lot lately because this year – the farm, my main farm that I hunt was absolutely loaded. And last year it wasn't. And I have a feeling that this upcoming year, it won't be either. There'll be your stay at home bucks that call it home, but it's not going to be a sponge. Like it typically is when let's say the corn is in for some reason, when the corn is in on this farm, it just, it holds more deer for some reason. So
1: Oh. well, it, it wouldn't it be cool if we could convince the the tenant or the landowner to, <laughs> to have the farm. If, you know, if there's a hundred tillable acres, like, Hey, let's do 50, 50, soybeans, 50 corns, and then rotate that every year. Right. But obviously that makes them a lot less efficient. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're That's not gonna, they're not gonna sign up for that plan, but I think that would help us. Right. I mean, yeah. that would keep <laughs> more of those same deer there consistently year right. after
0: year. If we're going to be a hundred percent selfish, I think that would be a good move. And <laughs> yeah. he has to come out of the field, you know, instead of driving one straight line while he plants, he has to come back, you know, change equipment, change seed, and then come back and plant the next. You know, just not very, mm-hmm. not very user friendly. But hey, man, it's all about big bucks. That's right.
1: That's right. Which which most most landowners and, and farmers don't care a whole lot about. But <laughs> exactly. for us, right? I mean, that's, exactly. That's the holy grail.
0: So back, you know, we kind of got off subject there, but uh, talk yeah, to me a little yeah. bit about how the whitetail went.
1: Uh, whitetail was whitetail was really good. I, I don't personally hunt much in October at all. Um, I, I guess if cameras are showing some some good bucks moving early, uh, I'll, I'll maybe hunt early. But my wife doesn't join a bow hunt, but she is a fair weather hunter. Gotcha. So if we hunt, it's usually I hunt with her. You know, the the first four, five, six days of October because sometimes we can get those real nice 70 degree days, you know, and, then, you know, there's a chance you get one on their on, on their feet early and, and she just enjoys being in the tree that time of year. So we kind of, we kind of dabble around a little bit early, but I, I typically just wait until that first really good cold front that hits that, that third or fourth week of October. It's kind of weather dependent on, on when I put in some time, but hunted a little bit in October, um November, Again, around work and and kind of my schedule hunted a a fair bit, Um, and it really all came together. I shot a nice deer, uh, actually on a farm just about less than a mile from my house, Uh, just kind of essentially across the road on uh, November 9th. So I'd actually gotten back from South Dakota. I killed a South Dakota mule deer on November 6th. I was home on the 8th. Wind was right to hunt a, a set I hadn't been in all year. Jumped in the tree on the ninth and had a real nice deer shot by about uh, eight thirty in the morning.
0: Nice, nice. Well, that's the crazy thing though, man. Like now your now your rut's kind of over. Uh, are you a, are you a landowner?
1: Uh, this year I do not have a landowner tag. Okay. Uh, next year I will have that coveted third Wait. tag. Nice. Okay. So for me. Like, I
0: love tagging, like, I love shooting a buck, but, like, this year and last year, I was only in my tree stand for four days out of, like, 16 days that I set aside, and then the rest of the time, you're like, well, man, now I got to go back home, and I got to be a dad again, and what kind of fun is that? Right.
1: It's it's kind of bittersweet, but I, I kind of found myself in that same position, it's like, November ninth. There's still so much good movement, so much good rut left. Yeah, but you, you you're kind of done, right? You're kind of you're kind of benched at that point until what was it, January tenth or December tenth? Like like basically, you know, muzzleloader season right. when that started.
0: Right. Absolutely. So,
1: yeah, having that that third wild card landowner tag definitely helps kind of extend that season a little bit. That's for sure.
0: Was this uh, a buck? the one that you shot with your bow, one that you'd been watching all summer or from previous years?
1: You know what? Yeah, it, it, was, it was a deer I'd been watching this summer. Um, in fact, again, this farm's so close to house, like, I mean, I've got trail camera pictures of them in my yard. I mean, nice. it's, this deer was a deer I, I I knew quite a bit. Um, but it really wasn't, it wasn't kind of like what I wanted my target buck. To be, It kind of has to go back to the earlier part of the conversation where these these deer are moving based on crop rotation and deer that are there one year and aren't the next. Uh, There's some really, really top-end deer um, that didn't show up until late. And then actually, uh, a a deer I was hunting last year, uh, big non-typical, I picked up his right-side shed in early January last year, uh, never found his left side, uh, but ended ended up finding him dead on a showing so I was mm-hmm. showing some clients a farm across the street from where I hunt and uh actually found him uh in early March so I confirmed his death and man I was really hoping to see what he would turn into this year so that was a that was kind of a devastating blow you know going into a, another season yeah. thinking I'm gonna have a real good crack at a plus 200 inch deer which is so rare to begin with and then he uh, he makes it through gun season, makes it through all the seasons, and then probably ends up coming to some coyotes or something late season.
0: Right, right. One of one of a hundred different things that it could be. So, it, absolutely,
1: yeah, yep. You know, right. They got such a tough life, man. For them to yeah. make it to to five or six years old is so tough in the first place. Right, absolutely. I have a I have a couple bucks.
0: I I often think of they don't they show up on trail cameras one or two times throughout the whole summer and then they disappear for the entire year. I don't get any hard horn pictures of them and then they show back up when I go and put my mineral out and put my trail cameras back up to, you know, for the velvet. And I just wonder where do these deer go? How the hell do they survive the high gun pressure? The, I mean, this mm-hmm. winter in Iowa has been ridiculously cold. Uh so they yep. they got to be tough to to just make it
1: yeah i mean do you think they're do you think they're moving farms do you think they're 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 ranging a, a mile a mile and a half away i mean there's yeah. some farms that are nearby that don't get pressured that have great cover i mean where do you where do you think these deer are going
0: yeah i have no idea man uh i you know obviously i hunt in a in a the farm that i hunt on is in a decent neighborhood with some management uh in a couple directions but i just think that to the north is really big chunk of timber and I think that when it gets pushed for shotgun season and when the bow hunters uh, come in there and you know everything else I think they just have a ton of escape routes and this year with the good acorn crop and yeah we just recently got a lot of snow but, but they've had enough to eat where I have a feeling his cover and his food just aren't that far apart and he doesn't move. He lives in a very small core area Mm -hmm. that I unfortunately don't have permission to get to. So, so it's cool though, to see him pop up every, every so often and see how his uh, antler growth does. I mean, this is like the fifth year I've seen him and he's uh, last year was his biggest year. And now it seems like he's going downhill just
1: a little bit, but I don't know. It's fun to watch. Yeah, it's exciting when they just all of a sudden show up right. after not having a picture of him for five months. Like absolutely, damn, there yep. he is. He's absolutely, made it. He's alive. So
0: you got, so you, it's almost like four two deer in four days, uh, between uh, South Dakota and Iowa. So that probably made you happy. Then it was it turned into muzzleloader season, and you got another another
1: buck in Iowa. I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Hunted, uh, hunted my lease pretty hard. And, and, I think the, the mistake that was made there was I, I, I thought I had an arrangement to, to keep food on with a, with the landowner harvest came, <laughs> They just rolled right through the combines on everything. And, and the farm really didn't have a ton of food on it, but I, I've got really, really great cover. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was holding a bunch of deer, um, and, and, and I was able to kind of just sit back. I've got a elevated hay bale blind on a terrace and I've got really good visibility and, and essentially my setup there works on, on pretty much all prevailing winds, anything westerly, northerly or northwesterly. I mean, I'm invincible, which, you know, typically late season is the majority of our winds. Right. So I hunted that quite a bit and, and had some close calls, you know, had some really good bucks that were just, you know, probably out of the, my effective range with the muzzle loader and, and just, knew i could get a closer shot and hunted uh, hunted that piece hard and passed up a i don't know i've I've got to find a chef but based on the pictures i've got on him like a mid 160s nine pointer like really good mass good time length just a super pretty deer Uh, i think he's a five-year-old based on some other pictures i have of him um and almost almost shot him but kind of let him roll and then uh The day I guess it had been the day after Christmas so the 26th uh we were planning to leave the 27th to go visit some family down in Florida so we're flying out early out of Des Moines the weather was awesome on the 26th went to the same farm that I killed my deer during bow season in uh, and there was a really nice eight point there with like kind of a cool sticker off his uh, right G2 base and literally that was the first antler deer that hit the field on the 26th, and it was like five degrees, windy, cold. I mean, I just knew they were going to feed heavily, and he rolled out to a, a pick bean field and uh, shot him with a muzzle loader at like 100 yards. So, and that, that was actually the first year I've ever killed with a gun. All my every big game hunt I've ever done has always been archery. I mean, I, I love archery, but uh, wanted to have that that I guess that second tag and that second opportunity here in Iowa. So, so started muzzle loader hunting this year
0: right i always buy that muzzle loader tag but i think the rule is you can use archery equipment for that late season hunt or i think the yeah. the rule states primitive weapon whatever you know whatever falls under that category but uh the, a muzzle loader has always interested me um i i feel like in the next couple years as my kids get a little older and my wife needs less help at home, I'll be able to take advantage more of that late season hunting window and a, mm-hmm. mu- a-, a muzzle loader is definitely on my list.
1: Yeah. It's, it's cool. I mean, it, I mean, I, sh- I you know, I bought it this summer, shot it all summer, really try to familiarize myself with it. Cause it's, I mean, it's a, it's a different animal, you know, and just trying to understand its capabilities, but it, it was good, and and I think sometimes some farms set up really well for late season even archery hunting. The farms I have don't. It, it just it wouldn't allow me to to be where I needed to be, you know, and even to sit long enough, especially as it's cold of a winter as we've had. I mean, and it's it's tough to be an effective bow hunter when it's five degrees with wind chills that are you know negative numbers. But to kind of be able to sit back with a with a muzzle loader kind of gives you some other opportunities. So it was it was fun absolutely
0: well that's one hell of a season my friend i i think that uh now next year do you have the same do you have the same hunts or do you have different hunts lined up for the 2018 season
1: you know same same hunts um same hunts for for yeah for for white tails and, and mule deer uh with south dakota and saskatchewan i think i'm going to try to yeah, try to maybe slip an elk hunt in there in September. Nice. Um, but that's not confirmed yet. I've I've been trying to apply for a, like a limited entry Montana um, elk tag, which you know I've got some points now, and I may draw that. And if I don't draw that, um, I may just go to Colorado. Got some some access there and try to make it happen. I nice say my Colorado's it's over the counter where we're going to go. Kind of a yeah. general tag. Yep, you go every year. Yeah.
0: That's my goal I gotta yeah. get a general Colorado tag I got a, a buddy who lives out there Who is uh, Last year just didn't happen because of The uh, My my youngest child being born on September 22nd and I just Couldn't okay. step away from that but This year man nope. that's fingers crossed I'm going to there Colorado go. For my second ever elk hunt and I'm jacked Dude I, but I'm fat right now So I gotta lose some weight and get back in shape
1: well, it's good motivation. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, that's probably, one of, that's, that's probably one of the most fun hunts you could ever have is a, is a rut elk hunt when right. they're just screaming and tearing up the mountain. I mean, man, is that exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Now,
0: the second half of this podcast, I want to talk a little bit about what it is you do for a living and get into some of the details of that. But why don't you let everybody know what it is that you do for a living?
1: Yeah, so I work for, I'm an independent agent or or land specialist for Whitetail Properties Real Estate, Uh, and and Whitetail Properties, that uh, by most of your listeners have have seen the TV show, you know, on on, uh, the Sportsless channel, uh, that kind of highlights properties and land management and and general QDM and just all things that that come with land ownership. Um, So we're really well known on the TV show, but we're actually a, a real estate brokerage that's based in I think we're up to like 28 states right now Um, and we've got you know well over 200 uh, independent land specialists or or, or agents that are that are working with clients to to buy and to sell land so we really specialize we got started uh, specializing in a real niche of, of just recreational kind of recreational hunting properties and that's expanded over into not only the rec ground but also a highly productive tillable ground as well. But the one thing you won't ever see us do is we don't sell commercial properties. Uh, we don't really sell a lot of residential properties unless it's a, a home on an acreage, you know, right. 10, 20, 30, 40 acres. We really try to just be the best at just selling raw land in, in larger acreages. Right.
0: Okay. So I just, a guilty pleasure of mine uh, is whether You know, I can't sleep at night or, you know, like after this podcast, I'm going to have about 30 minutes before I have to go get the kids from daycare that if I don't have anything Mm -hmm. else to do, I might pull up whitetail properties and I might start flipping through some of those properties and and basically daydream about owning uh, a, a really good piece of property someday. So with that said, my my base on this podcast is a lot of DIY, hardcore bow hunters who um, hunt a lot of public land. But them, just like me, it's always been a dream of owning a piece of property that you can call your own someday. Now, for the guy out there who, as soon as they heard you say real estate agent for you know Whitetail Properties, the first thought in their head was, I'm never going to own a piece of property. Tell, tell them why they're wrong.
1: Well, I mean, land ownership is, is extremely attainable. And I, and I think sometimes they don't, maybe some of your listeners and people in general just don't understand the process, um, or even the, the type of farm that helps them get to their first piece of ownership. So as a, as a person, as a perfect example, um, uh, if you were to buy a, a 40 a, a track of all timber, so there's not going to be a lot of income on that property. So from a lender's perspective, the lender's going to need, you know, more money down, which can be a barrier to entry. Cause we all have mortgages and bills and families and all this other stuff going on. And, and sometimes that, you know, extra disposable income to put in the form of a down payment on a farm can be tough on let's say a hundred percent timber track. But if you could find what we call like a combination farm, which is great for for archers and hunters, you know, where it's got a a mix of timber and a mix of agriculture. So now you've got an income producing component. Lenders like the fact that there's income on the farm. You now have less of a down payment. It depends on the lender you deal with and the, the products they offer. But typically it's a lower down payment, not to mention the farm is helping you essentially pay that mortgage. So the farm is paying for itself or starting to pay for itself. So it actually makes that actual, that, that monthly, that monthly mortgage much, much less. Um, not to mention at least in Iowa, and I can't speak for, you know, all States where your listeners are from, but in Iowa, we're we're coming out of, you know, two or three years of, of kind of a, uh, recession and kind of a depressed land market. It's starting to really appreciate again. And, And if you look at that hundred year cycle of land appreciation in Iowa, Um, we've come out of the dip we're gonna have anywhere from four to to seven years of pretty rapid appreciation so it's a good time right now to make that investment because if you ever want to sell that farm and and roll into a bigger farm or just get out of the land ownership in general you've got a real tangible asset there that's helped pay for itself along the way not to mention you get all the extra value out of, out of just the enjoyment and the, in the recreational aspects of the farm. Right.
0: I know this is kind of a vague question, but what drives land prices? Like whenever, whenever you see a farm for sale, you see this is the price per acre. What drives that price? Mm
1: Well, I I think, I think probably three different factors. Uh, one is going to be, especially if it is a combination farm or a tillable farm, it's going to be the quality or the productivity of the soils. Um, so, you know, a farm, let's say, and am not picking on any part of the state, but typically the soil quality in the southern third of the state isn't as high as the central part of the state or especially the northern part of the state. So, you know, the price breaker is going to differ just based on the productivity and, and what that farm or what that soil will yield in terms of crops. So there's a it's called a CSR two rating. It's a corn suitability rating that this, that Iowa State University came up with. And it's a it's essentially a measurement or a, a gauge where we can look at a farm in Clark County versus a farm in Buena Vista County and, and come up with a value and, and a difference in value based on the soils. So that's gonna be one driving factor. Um, another driving factor is really going to be just supply and demand. I mean, that's, that's always going to affect the prices. Um, you get in some of these neighborhood areas where it's been highly, highly managed and all of the neighbors are on the same page and they're letting three and four year olds pass. And there's a really, really old, you know, mature deer age structure and the genetics are phenomenal. That same farm with the same dynamics, five miles away, maybe $500 less an acre. But you're, but there's a premium just based on its location, in the demand to be in that neighborhood for guys that want to really manage farms and, and have top-end deer. So that's a that's a factor. And then I think another factor that, that changes the the price of land is kind of where the, the 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 CSR2, like the the soil productivity, is kind of a way that we put a, a cost approach on the value of land. Another way that we come approach you need to get the total annual return, what that farm produces in terms of of, of income or dollars per year. and then there could be a multiple applied to that. So uh, a, a farm, you know maybe of so many acres and a three percent return isn't going to be worth as much as a farm of the same size that has a three and a half percent or a three and three quarter percent return. So there's fewer of those farms. there's not as much supply. Uh, in, investors, as an example, will will pay more for a farm that has a higher return than one that's got a lower return. So I think those are kind of the three main factors that that drive or change the value of land in Iowa.
0: Okay.
1: So, and here's another thing
0: that I, I noticed. Why? Is, and this is a, a question that I have because I'm not educated on this, you know, buying and selling land at all. But why is the price per acre for, let's say, a twenty a twenty-acre farm, greater than, let's say, a three hundred and fifty-acre farm.
1: Well, I, I think there's 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 always a pricing strategy involved, depending on no matter what size farm it is going to hit the market. I think there's going to be there's there is greater demand for the for the smaller tracts, be it a, a twenty, a forty, or an eighty, and there's a lot more buyers. In that pool that can afford a 20, 40, or 80. So sometimes there's a bit of a premium put on those smaller tracks. As you get into the bigger tracks you mentioned, like a 320, the amount of buyers that can afford a 320 are much much smaller. So there's not as much competition. Typically the sellers are, are going to be a little bit more conservative in the way that they price that farm. But again, the, the price that you'll see on, you know, our website or any of the land websites just like anything, I mean, there's always lots of negotiation that goes into it. And what you see online isn't necessarily always what the farm sells for. You know, it could, it it could sell for, I mean, I've seen some farms sell, especially if they're overpriced, but it could be, it could sell for 15 or 20% less than list. I think that's a rare occasion. I think somewhere in that five to 10% off of what you see is list is, is definitely more common.
0: Okay. So, Let's say something happens. I, 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 I think it's time where I need to start looking to, to buy mm-hmm. buying some property. What are some of the first things that uh, a potential buyer needs to do before he can actually go through and say, I want to put an offer in on this piece of property?
1: I, I, there isn't necessarily like a set checklist of what you, you need to do, but what I think is best – to be prepared is the first thing you want to do is, is meet with a lender or multiple lenders and, and find out what kind, of, what kind of lending products they offer, what the interest rate is, what the terms, you know, tell them, hey, I want to buy a, a recreational piece of land. This is what my budget is. You know, what can you do for me in terms of, a, you know, an agricultural or a rural uh, mortgage or loan? Kind of get those ducks in a row, kind of almost like you would when you buy a home. Sometimes you kind of get pre-qualified ahead of right. time, even though you haven't found the house you want to buy. But you've kind of got everything. You've supplied all your financial documents to your lender. Your lender knows, yeah. Hey, I can I can extend a, a half a million line to this, you know, to this buyer or, or whatever it is. But kind of get that piece in line so that way you can actually technically start shopping inside of your budget and then when you do write that offer and the fact that you're already pre-qualified at that point that sends a really strong message to the seller like hey this this offer is legit you know this isn't hey i'm going to send you an offer and then there's all these different contingencies of well now i got to go talk to a lender i want to see if i can get financed i want to see if i can get a loan um it, it really helps again with that negotiation point especially if they're if the farm's for sale at a price that you may not feel comfortable with or you really want to offer them less, being pre-qualified and having a lender in your pocket ready to go really helps in negotiation.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And then once that happens, they call you, right?
1: Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, and we go, we go, we go shopping. We go find them a farm.
0: Nice. Nice. So is there, is there any, uh, anything else that uh, a potential buyer needs to think about, um, whether it's before they call you or, you know, trying to figure out what kind of ground because, you know, and let's just keep the, the conversation to Iowa right now, Mm -hmm. because that's where we're both from. But when it comes to shopping for ground, is there, is there something that buyers need to be aware of when, you know, before they just jump in and say, I want
1: that one. I think it's like any major purchase, and, and and buying land, you know, ranks as as one of the that probably one of the most significant purchases that most people make throughout their life. I mean, probably just second to to buying their home, and and sometimes you know, a land purchase is actually of more value than sometimes a residence. So it's a it's a significant um, significant purchase. I the one thing that I always recommend is you know, from a buyer's perspective, is is kind of get to know the the agents, you know. And, and White Properties is obviously, the, I'd say, the at least in Iowa, the biggest recreational brokerage around, and, and that's the case in most states too. But you know, there's some other really good agents. I, I would meet all the agents. I'd kind of almost, you know, grab a coffee with them, take them for lunch, whatever it may be. Kind of understand their approach, and and I think it's really important that you have a good solid rapport with your agent because you're gonna you're gonna kind of entrust in that agent that. He's going to do a lot of the due diligence, do a lot of the research, dig into the details of the farm and be able to come to you and say, all right, Dan, I found you three farms that meet your criteria. He's really going to, he or she's going to really run down every little aspect of that farm income, you know, talking about the neighbors, are there easements? Are there any other encumbrances? Are there leases? Tenants? I mean, there's, there's a lot of different factors that kind of go in that that can be different from farm to farm. So it's. I think it's really important to have that relationship, spell out exactly what you're looking for, let that agent ask you questions, kind of interview you, kind of have him or her better understand exactly what it is you're looking for so we can go to work and, and try to find you that, that perfect farm. Right,
0: okay. Now, a lot of people talk about buying the property, buying the property, but one thing I have never heard people talk about is now it's time for me to maybe cash in on, on this investment and snowball it into a bigger farm or a different farm or a Mm -hmm. better farm or whatever. What, what kind of things do a property seller need to know before, I guess saying, all right, now it's time to sell.
1: Um, You know, I think the, the the biggest thing that especially on your first farm, when you go to sell your first farm, and let's say you're rolling from a, an 80 and you want to buy a 120 or a 160, uh, the biggest thing is going to be tax. Um, and that can kind of sneak up on some people, whether it be, you know, a short-term capital gain or, or just a capital gain uh, that sale can be taxed, you know, quite heavily. So the nice thing is, is uh, through our IRS code, uh, 1031, you're actually able to defer the taxes from the sale of one property, one piece of real estate into another. So essentially you're just, the taxes never go away, but you're just kicking the tax can down the road, which again can be extremely helpful. Um, So, you know, meeting with your agent, understanding that process and the advantages and how you do that. I mean, it's a wonderful tool um, through the IRS, your financial planner or your CPA would know all about it. There's, uh, there's people that specialize just in doing 1031 exchanges, not only in Iowa, but anywhere across the country, they're called qualified intermediaries. These are great resources that help you understand that process. But I would say having a, a handle on the taxes or tax implications on that sale is probably the one thing that most sellers aren't prepared for initially. And that's where their agents can really help educate them on that and get them prepped. Gotcha
0: what are what other things like i got a buddy who is getting ready to sell uh, a farm with that sits on well it's a house that sits on 20 acres of timber and uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've hunted it the last two years and every once in a while a big buck will come through i actually missed a booner on there th- two or three years ago and oh. uh, yeah uh but how important is it for someone to maybe keep track of those trail camera pictures and keep, you know, maybe go out and take some pictures of some rubs or some scrapes or some well-used trails. Does, does any of that information help in the selling of a farm?
1: Yeah, that, that helps tremendously. Um, especially like that history, like, like you said, the history of trail cameras, uh, camera pictures, you know, any deer that have been taken on the, on the farm, whether it be by the family or friends, having good pictures of those, heck even bass or crappie that have been caught out of the farm pond, like all those little assets kind of help us paint a picture of what this farm has produced and can produce, you know, even taking great photos, you know, in, in fall colors. Cause sometimes like this time of year we may get a new listing and unfortunately the farm is going to probably show the worst right now, you know, snow on the ground, everything's gray, no leaves, everything's beat down. I mean, we still take the pictures and we take great pictures and do the best we can, but I I love getting a listing in in August or September where I can take some just dynamite drone photos or, you know, we got full color coming and, and we can keep updating those photos. So yeah, any assets like that, that, that you have in your collection or that are timely. And if you're thinking in the next year or two you're going to sell, make a file and just start pouring that stuff into the file. Pictures of rubs, pictures of scrapes, I mean all that stuff really does sell farms. Okay, cool.
0: Now kind of going backwards, back to buying buying land again, what's, what's the first step for someone who has the dream of buying a property but hasn't taken any step towards that yet
1: so the the first step before all the first before
0: everything the very first step now like a guy who's never thought about buying land now and now he's he hears this and he goes i want to be a landowner someday what does he need to do today to help him prepare for let's say a land purchase in five ten fifteen years
1: you know, I think the biggest thing is just is just save. Um, again, any farm purchase, whether it's all timber or, or all tillable or whatever, is going to require a down payment. Uh, and I think that's going to be the, the the first step um, is just have a have a plan, meet your financial planner or advisor, let them know what your your short or long term goals are and really come up with a plan on on how you can do that. Um, because I've, I've met with a lot of clients who've you know, maybe kind of gotten the cart before the horse a little bit and and, and we've started looking at farms and once we found a farm they've realized man this is the perfect farm I want this farm but it was either out of their budget or what they thought was in their budget but their lender required more of a down payment and they just didn't have cash on hand to be able to make it happen all the other numbers worked except for they just didn't have the down payment so I, I think that's one of the biggest things to plan for is that is definitely the first step is having that cash for the down payment. And sometimes you can find a farm and even if you save enough and the farm's got income on it, you can put enough of a down payment down where then the income off the farm covers the mortgage and taxes for the year. So it's almost like to do some easy math, you know, if you were to, and these are big numbers, but let's just say, well, I'll use smaller numbers. Let's say the farm was a hundred thousand dollars. And you put thirty-five thousand down, or maybe forty thousand down, so thirty-five or forty percent down. That farm then could pay for itself. So really, you bought a hundred thousand dollar asset for thirty-five or forty thousand dollars from yeah. a use of cash standpoint. You know, you can then you can multiply that, and, and you know, and even make that a larger scale. But you can buy a hundred thousand dollar asset for thirty-five or forty grand if right. the income's there on the right piece. So that's where it gets really exciting. Is you know, then you get land appreciation. Let's say you hold that farm for four or five years. You fix it up. You clean it up. You create all those assets we just talked about, the photos. You enjoy the farm the whole time. Then five years down the road, you go to sell it. You paid that note down. You've got equity in the farm plus the appreciation. And now you've got that bigger down payment to go into a bigger farm, and you just kind of keep rolling it. It takes time, and it takes finding the right farms, but – it can be done and guys are doing it every day right absolutely
0: well man i tell you what i appreciate you taking time to uh, come on the podcast and chat with us a little bit um i uh congratulations on one hell of a season and uh good luck this well, upcoming you. season man
1: awesome man yeah thanks for thanks for having me i appreciate it and there you have it, another podcast in the books.
0: Huge shout out to Garrett for taking time out of his schedule to come on the podcast and chat about his season and a little bit about buying and selling property. Also, huge shout out to each and every one of you. As always, and I say this two to three times a week man thank you guys because if it wasn't for you this wouldn't be happening and please share let's spread the word about the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network go to Facebook go to Instagram follow us on social media not only the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network but Landon Legacy Transition Wild DIY Sportsman and Southern Ground Podcast whoa I was talking with my hands there. Got fired up. Anyway, so go like us on social media. All of the the uh, the podcasts that are on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. Go to thesportsmansnation.com. And at the bottom of the page, it allows you to enter your email address. Now, why is that important? Because not only... Are we going to be putting out a ton more content, but we're going to be doing giveaways here pretty soon, and we're going to be doing, uh, discounts, so, like, I'll send you an email, it's going to have a discount of maybe either a partner or another, uh, product on there, and it could save you some money, so, uh, sign up for that, it's going to be a lot of cool things coming via email now, and then, what else, what else, what else, what else, what else, um... Go to iTunes or wherever you download our podcasts, leave a review, and uh, you can give us five stars. That'd be uh, pretty awesome, or you can give us one star, but I would prefer five stars because, I don't know, I have four fingers, and I wish I had my, my fifth finger back sometimes, but I'm, I'm completely okay with having four now. Okay, this is the point of the podcast where I should probably shut off my microphone. So please, if you're going to be in the timber, hanging, taking down, doing anything with a tree stand in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.